We're back to the Neil Haley Show and the special political coverage. And years before I would have secretaries of the could be the secretary of education on the program, but now breaking it down this last two days, I decided to talk politics. And for the first time ever, I really will not give my stance on certain things because of the fear I've had. And you've heard this on other shows about how, if you are a journalist that does not, it's not a political journalist. If you own a business or something and you tell who you are voting for, you're in deep trouble. But my guest today, he will tell us truly where he's coming from. So I'm excited to welcome the program, John Carney of Breitbart. Uh, John, thanks for stopping by. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. But you agree, John, that if you really want to be a true journalist, just go both sides. I wish that we could just allow each side on any platform that's the major news media, ABC, CBS, NBC, and allow that to be out there and not the spin. And then you have ones that are, you know, like the home team. I think that's the way that the media should go. Well, I, I have to say, I've been shocked at um, how censorious American culture has become, meaning when people hear something they don't like, their first instinct is not, uh, I'm going to respond to that. It's something like, how do I make it so that this person never gets to speak in a place where I hear them again? And it didn't used to be like that. No. You know, we my favorite television shows growing up were Crossfire, McLaughlin Group. You had where you had a whole variety of views and they and people had debates. Now when somebody, you know, goes on a radio show that's not a right wing radio show, but it's a conservative person on a you know, on NPR, the NPR audience says, Take that person off, how dare you? And there's a lot less of that on the right, but it, it's going to infect everybody eventually if we don't fix things it truly will because then you're going into like the communist media or certain state-controlled media yep. and you're really into a level you always had your certain things but you allow that other side to come on and so much of what they want to fact check and not fact check at the end of the day and just just again or the political spin it goes both ways but ultimately at the end of the day i think that people should have both sides on and give them the opportunity to debate and that's what was healthy. Think about Hannity and Combs. That was really good. Sure. That was really good, healthy debate. And I'm sure Han uh, Combs would say the same thing. And then you look at just other types of things, but they got rid of that. And it ended. And then even when you bring on a Rick Santorum to CNN, they just lambaste him and don't give him a shot with four other people on a panel. And then the same thing with other people that they bring on at conservatives. But at the end of the day, I'm going to give you my point. The reason why this is so crazy, this election, is because Donald Trump is not your true conservative. He has conservative values, but he has other values that get people in the, in the center to like him and, in the, and some Democrats. So this is where the problem is. It's not the true paint the picture of Rick Santorum type of conservative Donald Trump is, right? And I think that's the point that people miss. I think that's right. He definitely brought a lot of new perspectives and policies that you, you wouldn't have found in the candidate that a, you know, a national review would have traditionally exactly. picked as their guy. And, and of course the, those tr more traditional uh, conservatives really opposed Donald Trump. They were, they were dead set against yes. him and they, they were convinced that he couldn't win and that if he did win, he'd be a disaster and wouldn't really appoint conservatives to the court would it really cut taxes? 
and he did, you know, most of Donald Trump's, truthfully, most of Donald Trump's accomplishments in this first term, some of them are things that no conservative would have done, but many of them are just pretty standard conservative things. You know, he cut taxes, yeah. he appointed many great conservative uh, justices to the Supreme Court That's and right. to the lower courts. So it's been great. But your other the other things that Trump has been able to do is help the middle class and also provide and look at specific ways to get certain people up the ladder in life and seeing that there is an opportunity, not just giving a government handout and that. But certain conservatives would not have gone that route. They would not have been about spending. And Pre President Trump was about spending money that was needed at times. And and, and look, he one of the things that he did, and it's undoubted, you can look at the numbers, he created a lot of new manufacturing jobs. A lot of the Republican Party had just assumed, just like a lot of the Democratic Party as well, had just assumed that their job was kind of to manage the decline of American fact manufacturing, to let it go. There was nothing that could be done to rescue it. And Donald Trump said, no, we can revive this. And Barack Obama right. famously said, how are you going to bring those jobs back with a magic wand? Well, yeah, he had a magic wand. It was a program called economic nationalism. You, you spent when the government needed to spend. You raised tariffs. And more than anything, I think, even beyond any specific policy, there was the commitment that businesses, American factories, was were getting from the president that he would no longer allow China to victimize them. And I think that gives people the confidence to spend on their business, to invest in new equipment, and to grow their workforces in a way exactly. that they would not have been able to do before. Exactly. And the ones that are voting for uh, people uh, voting for Biden that you know, or businesses that don't that don't care if their taxes raised, they're just going to send them back overseas. Just go overseas, and they're not going to pay anything. Bottom That's line, right. yeah, they're going to. So the ones that came back because Trump, you know, gave them tax cuts to make it worthwhile to have manu manufacturing jobs or having, you know, certain, they're going to go and take it overseas. They're going to go back to China. They're going to go back to Mexico. They're going to go back to wherever they go where they could get a better price per dollar. And right. And uh, one of the things Trump did was actually, uh, yes, he gave businesses a big tax cut and doing the tax cut before the tariffs was a good idea because it meant that there was a little extra profit margin. But one of the things the businesses do not like, and it started to happen just in the last two years, it's obviously been interrupted by the China plague that we have now. But the one of the things he did was start to raise, create such a tight labor market that wages, which had stagnated for so long, started to go back up again. We got really decent wage growth in 2018 and 2019, something we hadn't seen for a long time. But guess what? The big businesses, the Tim Cooks of this world, they don't like high wages. They And a lot of them would rather trade a slightly higher tax rate that they can largely avoid uh, for lower wages. Exactly. So you, you hit the nail on the head, and that's the, the thing. So let's talk about... Why the decision tomorrow, which again will air tomorrow and people listening tomorrow as I, I planned this out to have you on based on just airing it tomorrow to go out syndication and the whole world is we also the world listens to this as well. Looking at the reason why, if you vote for Biden, how it's going to hurt the economy, especially the green energy plan. What's that going to do? 
So one of so Biden swears every time he's asked directly that he won't uh, ban fracking. Uh, he doesn't need to ban it because he is going to put it out of business. He is going to force the major utilities, the people who make our electricity, to get off of fossil fuels altogether. And so obviously once you do that, that's the biggest customer for natural gas. So that wipes out natural gas. Uh, no more uh, hydraulic fracturing to extract natural gas. It hurts oil. Oil is another big source. Uh, energy source in the United States, it hurts uh, automakers because as they shift away from uh, fossil fuel uh, engines, they are not necessarily going to re build the factories that were built to make our gasoline powered cars and trucks they're not necessarily going to do that in the united states particularly if there's no tariffs that they have to worry about so they'll build in china and they'll build in mexico so the green energy plan is not just a green energy plan it's actually the death of american manufacturing and mining plans yeah exactly it's going to eliminate all fossil fuels which is going to make our gas prices go up tremendously and obama didn't think this way right he didn't have a plan like this right this That's radical right. this goes far yeah. beyond anything obama said now look i don't know maybe obama you know a younger version of obama or an obama today might be as radical as joe's but this isn't what people voted for in 2008 when they voted for obama right. this was not even on the table when they reelected obama it was not on the table this is a radical step that we've never seen from a democratic candidate before and i think a lot of voters who have swung back and forth in the past are going to look at this and say this is too much this right. is too far we can't do it because you cannot and see and then raising taxes during a pandemic is ridiculous because if you, raise it, that, if you raise it if you raise it on the rich they're going to cut they're going to cut they're going to cut their staff they're going to want to make profit. They're going to they're going to lay people off and that's how they'll make their money back. No school of economics tells you in the midst of, you know, a business downturn that is been enorm as enormous of what, of what we've seen that you go ahead and you raise taxes, not just on the wealthy, but also on the businesses that employ everybody. So the businesses pay more taxes. Remember, businesses don't really pay taxes. That money comes from three places. It comes from shareholders. It comes from investment in their own business, so they expand less. And it comes from the workers. So all sensible economists tell you that when you raise taxes on businesses, you're really taxing both the workers and the shareholders. That means people's retirements, uh, retirement accounts. You, nobody would tell you that's a good idea during a pandemic. Yet they say we're going to do this, you know, as their number one priority. Exactly. And the number one, and so that, and that number one priority, that's crazy. And so that green energy plan, as we said, will eliminate all fossil fuels. We'll continue to put money towards businesses, trying to fund businesses like uh, solar and wind. And they will just pretty much uh, uh, eliminate lots of jobs. And then it's going to take time to build those jobs back up again, right? No, no more, oil, no more oil jobs, no more coal jobs, all of those things. And so, if you're not defend, if you're not defending your uh, industrial base while you're doing this, guess what happens? 
those solar panels are not going to be made in America. The research on them will be done with American taxpayer money. The windmills will be will the, the designs will be done subsidized by the American taxpayer and, uh, as under the plan. But the real work building them, if you don't do something to prevent this from happening, and they have no plan to prevent it from happening, will be done in China. It will be done around the world where labor is cheap. It will not be done in the United States. So we will lose the U.S. jobs. And the jobs that are supposed to replace them won't come to America. Why would they? You have cheap labor that will be subsidized by the Chinese Communist government. It's not going to be here unless we make it be here. Exactly. You. It's just it's a frustration uh, to hear these things because regardless who you're voting for, you will, or regardless of what party you are, you don't want to see your job be let go. And then if, let's go to the six ways Biden's economy will hurt su- suburb suburbs, because this goes back, I think, to some of it with coronavirus. Right. And the plans of action of what he, Biden's plan is regarding the coronavirus if he's elected. Right. Well, so remember, one of the things that's happened is a lot of people have decided that they want more space. Maybe they're working from home. Their kids are right. schooling right. from home. Uh so there and and plus, you know, in the I live in downtown Brooklyn. There's usually a lot going on around here. A lot of restaurants, bars. We have the, the Brooklyn uh, Art Museum nearby, the big Brooklyn Library. That's all closed. All of that is gone. So people are saying, "Look, I don't get the space if I that I did if I had a house, and um, and now I don't get any of the amenities." So there's been a movement of people. Um, that's actually reversed what had been happening for about 20 years, where people are now looking for single-family homes outside of the center cities. Okay. Um, Biden, um, but and part of this is look that that's been part of the American dream for a long time. People Correct. wanted you know a house and a yard. Biden has signed on to a really radical view that says that zoning for single-family homes. So when you you know when you have a rule in your town or your you know that says you can only have build single-family homes, not apartment buildings and not factories, uh, then that's racist. Because oh, it, it, and so what they want to do is pressure towns using the federal government to give up single-family zoning so that you can build cheaper uh, apartment and you know condo complexes out in the suburbs to integrate them because they say that, that American suburbs are... Uh, are not integrated enough. It's it's the reason why it's such a radical view is they're not actually accusing people of being racist, right? This isn't right. the old school redlining. They're saying that just the existence of places that don't have the what they view as the right mix uh, are systemically racist. I call it magical racism uh, because you can't see it, but you you just know it's there because look. And so the, the, they want to stop that, and one of the ways they're going to do that is by subsidizing cheap housing in the suburbs and making it all but impossible to maintain the zoning rules that tell people, you know, what size building you can put on the lot and how, you know, and that it's supposed to be a single family house. Okay. So, you know, hearing this whole situation, that was something that President Trump has been touting, that he's saving the suburbs from low-income housing and different things based on that zoning law. But I think the biggest thing, that if you want to sit down tomorrow and say to yourself, we went through this shutdown 
for two to three months, right? When COVID was at the highest level. And it really was debilitating at least the first month for people if they thought they'd have a job or not. If it wasn't for PPP, the PPP, there would be, it'd be over. It would be done. They, we would have we would have imploded as bad as the other economies in Europe. Now they're shutting down again the economies in Europe. I mean, the uh, the essential businesses are go- only not essential businesses are being closed. So essential businesses are only ones staying open. If Biden is elected, what will that do? Uh, to will he have another shutdown? Absolutely. Look, there's no, we we just got the news today, Monday, that the UK was going back into lockdown. Right. The France announced earlier the, or last week that it's in lockdown. Germany's in lockdown. They're actually tightening the lockdowns in France and Germany right now, and the UK lockdown has no end to it. It may go on for months. Oh God. Biden is not going to resist what his European pals uh, are doing. So when you see Macron and Angela Merkel doing these lockdowns, Biden is going to do that as well. Uh, we have rising cases. We're about, I'd say, four weeks behind Europe. We are going yes. to have more cases in the U.S. Yes. It's far less fatal, thank God, than it was back in April when we first locked down. Yeah, but we, should we lock down? I do, I, I do not think that anything close to what we did before or even what the Europeans are doing right now is called for. There are precautions we should take. There are, and many of which we now already take. Already do, like um, in doctor's yes. offices or hospitals right. or schools. And they show that there's not many cases being transferred that way. So back to the, probably the only thing, and this is where I'll be, uh, you know, take the side that we'll get in a little bit of argument. If President Trump would have chosen to say importance of masks, even though maybe they're not proven, but would have said, we got to social distance still. We got it. We got to wash our hands. Maybe not even say the word masks. If certain people have this debate on masks that we need to do what these certain um, buildings, schools, different places they are opened up where there's not many cases. We all need to do this to survive and not have another shutdown. I think people would listen. What are your thoughts? So, one, I agree that the president and many other people uh, really underestimated the severeness and scope, severity and scope of the virus. I bought masks for my family in late January. People looked at me like I was oh, crazy walking around the streets. Now, now, can we have this quote? You're from Breitbart. You're talking yes. masks. So you could at least spin some stuff on my show because there's no, you know, I have celebrities on. So celebrities come back and listen to this. They say, we like, Neil, that you're fair and balanced in your conversations with everybody. I said, oh, the publicist to come through because I do have a lot of, uh, of celebrities on my show. But go ahead. Continue with your point. Yeah, well, so they look people there, were, and it wasn't just me. I'm not the only Breitbart person who uh, I was warning people that um, that that in early in early February that they were going to cancel March Madness and that opening day for baseball would be canceled. Now, I will say that even I, given those statements, was underestimating how long oh, this gosh. was going to be impacting us because. It was it was much longer. It wasn't just opening day or opening week that was canceled. We pushed everything way off, and now you can't go to a baseball game. So even I, who was being called a doomer, that's what people call me. Uh, uh, we didn't even call it coronavirus back then. They were just calling it, you know, like 
uh, you know, anyway, they called me a virus doomer back in uh, January and February and even early March. And so then you must have played the market. Out. You might have made some money, right? If you're predicting this. <laughs> I try not to. Uh, I try not to place directional bets on my that are related to my work because I don't want to be rooting to be right, especially oh, geez, when, yeah. it's, when it's a terrible, it's, when it's terrible news. It's a terrible you know? thing. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're you're saying that one thing you would be critical with the president is the way he's bringing out this virus right now when we're about to go for another wave. It's bottom line. See, my I, I have I have a team in India, and they basically told me this was happening, and we were getting they were getting a big wave going, and then Israel too, and now it's Europe. So we're next in three or four weeks. We're absolutely next. Um, we saw. Look, I originally caught on to it because I saw China. Uh, I watched you know what's going on in the economy very closely in China. I realized China wasn't locking down Wuhan out of you know some malice or you know that's an extremely important city economically to china and the extremity of the lockdown there teed me that this was a very serious problem the president underestimated in the early days but frankly so did all his experts so did the democrats it's everybody everyone in the united states yes yes and uh the president said it would be over by easter he told us we'd have a vaccine by election day i don't think these are helpful things to say I think we I think, again, there's there's a sensible plan that we can have, which is we don't need a lot of national rules. First of all, we can do it state by state, state. by state. Absolutely. We, we don't. What's right in New York, where I am or in Pittsburgh or in Philadelphia might be different for all three cities. And it's definitely not the same for what's going on in South Dakota. Right. We You need to have. A, enough flexibility. And thank God we have that in the United States. We have a system set up to allow us. To so you, would you have a ma- would you have man would you mandate masks masks across the country? I would not. I don't think that that makes sense for a guy for for a person in North Dakota to be told that. They've so would you mask. make that maybe businesses that are national businesses mandate I them? Would, I think businesses should be certainly allowed to mandate masks. You know, Walmart, if they I I don't agree with people who say, like, I shouldn't have to wear a mask to go into Walmart. Walmart's a national chain and they should. And there's too much liability involved. And I I just think that social distancing, I think that the message should be, if you're going to say state by state, is that we all have to be six feet apart. We can't have these super spreader events. We can't. I I honestly think Halloween was a joke to have Halloween this week in my my town, I was like, are you kidding me? That could happen. They were kind of social distancing. But how could you make the candy? People are touching the candy wrappers. Unless you cleaned every candy wrapper. I'm just, <laughs> I'm, giving, I'm giving you my point. And then I saw people, I some wore masks, some didn't wear masks. I stay and make sure I'm six feet away at all times. I don't want to get close to anyone ever. And that's been since the pandemic. But other people, ah, we can have family outings of 25, 30 people. The kids can go from house to house. Who cares? That's our problem. We need a direction that was like the beginning process and not have two speakies. So I think when the election's over, hopefully we'll have a plan nationally that is not maybe state by state. Let's hope because we sure as heck don't want the other uh, option because of a, a, a national lockdown. But well, one thing I see where I live is, and this is part of the danger of doing anything nationally, 
So I live in an area where people wear masks all the time. I actually see people alone in their car wearing masks. I see people alone on a street wearing masks. And in fact, if somebody sees you from, you know, 300 yards away, not wearing a mask, they, they, they're upset about it because it's a sort of virtue signaling thing. So one of the, and I think this, this has done real harm because what's happened is masks have become these, these sacred objects on the left and therefore the right has reacted by despising them and looking at them. And that is so unhelpful. You should wear a mask when appropriate, meaning anytime you're in danger of being near other people and breathing where they're going to breathe in, what you're going to breathe out and vice versa, you should always socially distance keep you know if you're walking down the sidewalk you know here in new york we've got pretty broad sidewalks stay to the far side you know like you don't need to be near each other exactly and uh and if we do those common sense things i think we're we're through we can get through this what we shouldn't do is exactly what you know is make it so i think and i think ultimately bringing back sports bringing back all those things it could come back to haunt by the last month of the year if you we have this big push up and we went to sports again with fans, maybe we waited too early. It just all depends. I've not found out the numbers. I'm not saying anything. But how stupid are we? We started the NFL season. The NFL season might not make it to the Super Bowl. I don't want that. Steelers are seven and zero. I don't want to end up where the season's canceled and it's a mulligan because of the cases. So we have to find out all those things. But we have to be worried about Europe. Do the right things. Your prediction tomorrow today? Who's winning? Trump so or Biden? I think- I think it's a toss-up. I don't think there's any way to call elections right now. I think it's there's too, yeah. There's too many. There's too many factors. I would it's a pick 'em. It's do, a pick 'em. Yeah. It's a pick 'em. Exactly. And it all depends who shows up tomorrow, uh, today. That, if people, that's right. uh, and who, yeah, go who showed up over the last couple of weeks? People have been voting. We don't know who's uh, voting for, for who, right, right? Based on all that, no and then idea. in the countings. So if let's just say Texas went Biden's way, he lost. If that's the thing, I think Texas would be. A huge loss to him. Even yes. though, oh, I, I think if Trump loses Texas, you can just you know, kiss say goodbye. Good night. night. Yeah. But you know they got the right ground game in Texas. But wouldn't it have been funny if he does win to loses Texas but wins all the others? That would just be the strangest thing in the world. And then they'd look at their ground games and say, "What are we going to do next?" But where can we find information on you, John? Because uh, I'd love to talk to you more another time. But where can we find info? Absolutely. Uh, you can always go to Breitbart, Breitbart.com. I run our economy page, so Breitbart.com slash economy. I am on Twitter, at Carney, at C-A-R-N-E-Y. Uh, I tweet a lot, and I'll be tweeting a lot during the uh, Oh, you're going to be busy tomorrow. Election, so, you're going to be up all night uh, watching, and I just like I, to have fun watching this this fiasco train of between everybody, and so, <laughs> soon it'll be over. But I appreciate it, John, for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, take care. All right, see ya. Bye-bye. You listen to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Neil Haley here. Lensec has been a sponsor of the Neil Haley Show and Total Media Network for around a year and a half. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about Lensec. Lensec has been a pioneer in IP security videos since 1998. The company is a trusted security partner with experience around the world. Lensec has experience working with customers in higher education, K through 12 education, government, public safety, critical infrastructure, healthcare, commercial, and more. The physical security experts at Lensec help customers develop 
enterprise solutions for their complex physical security projects using our flagship software, Perspective VMS. Lensex enterprise-level video management software, Perspective VMS, is a browser-based software that streams and captures IP security camera video. The latest version of PVMS uses HTML5 interactive features in a thin client application that is designed to provide real-time situational awareness. Access control and other advanced features are integrated into a unified security platform, creating an ability to track behavior and movement while monitoring the live or recorded video. For more information, please visit Lensec.com. And now back to the show. We're back to the Neil Haley show here on the author's corner segment and uh, it's political time <laughs> and what a person to talk to about it, but also about his book as well. I'm excited to welcome the program. Russell Heath, Russell, uh, thanks for calling. You are a lobbyist for the la for uh, the Alaskan government. So you understand what's about to happen the next couple days, or I guess not even 24 hours now till election. Well, maybe, I, I, I would just suggest that the, the tiny little Alaska legislature is, is, is perhaps not quite the model for the for the entire nation here. <laughs> Especially the way it is now, right? Could you imagine no. when you were, were part of that and it was just dealing with Alaska's elections involving may, all this, uh, the not one day's worth of balloting, but continue how much they're going to have to count? It's crazy. Well, that's. That's true. I, I do need to say, if I could put a plug in for a former lieutenant governor, Fran Ulmer, who was lieutenant governor in the in the 90s, did an overhaul of Alaska's voting system, you know, like Carlson, how you punch the votes and brought in really super machinery. It's all got paper, paper trails and it's super easy to use. And she did an excellent job. Um, and so Alaska is benefiting from that work that she did almost a quarter of a century ago now. Wow. Okay. So, but you learned a lot as a lobbyist, wouldn't you agree to your, to now your career as an entrepreneur, being a business owner, you, did you learn a lot in that lobbying days to kind of take your career uh, to the next level? Well, I don't know if it really helped my career so much. It certainly helped the writing, but I did really? learn a tremendous amount. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. The, yeah. The, um, you know, I learned a tremendous amount about how to, how we've the system to manage different points of view, different interests, you know, how we can all get something done when we all disagree at some sometimes very fundamental levels about how, you know, a state or our country should be run. So when I hear that, Russell, I hear that you probably did learn some of it, but you pretty much understood it. So what, after your days in lobbying, you wrote book. You're you're a writer, but also an entrepreneur, correct? Well, entrepreneur a little bit. I have a, a coaching business. Okay. So I so I never really set up a, a business other than than coaching. And are you, you're coaching businesses, right? Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I bet you some of it in the lobbying days, you know how to handle customer clients, just like you handle the people as a lobbyist. So I'm sure you took some of those skill sets into business. Trust me. I have a feeling. Alrighty. <laughs> with, with no, with no comment, with no comment, uh, based on that, but let's go wrestle right to your, your latest book, 
Rin's Crossing. And kind of explore Rhine's Crossing or Rin's, you can explain that. I the Rhine always is spelled differently. Is it am I correct with Rin's Crossing? It it is Rin, yes. Okay, okay. So let's kind of talk about uh how you got that idea to write that book. Well, the idea started back back some years ago when the well, actually, let me set the let me let me set the stage. So there's a piece of Alaska that comes down across, uh, attached to the the coast the, to uh, west side of British Columbia in Canada, and that is what we call Southeast Alaska. And that part of the world has the largest remaining um, temperate rainforest. And the national forest there that protects that is the is the Tongass National Forest. It's almost the size of West Virginia, 17 million acres of these glorious old trees. And they were being cut. They were being cut, from my point of view, with criminal abandon. And it was just really, really distressing. And I would have these fantasies, these daydreams about what would it take, what about like going into some of these logging camps and just taking out all their machinery. You know, there's no security there because those logging camps are tens or 50, you know, tens or twenties miles away from the lowest, the closest village. Yeah. So no one would catch, no one would catch me. And I said, well, that's an idea. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. What happens if somebody else were accused of my crime? What happens if somebody else were, 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 were hit with my crime, were charged with my crime. And that was the beginning of the novel. I said, ooh, that's an interesting story there. I take out the logging equipment and somebody else gets accused of it. So the very first scene, Rin is sabotaging the logging equipment of a, of a uh, logging camp in remote Alaska, in southeast Alaska. And his ex-lover, Kit, is accused of the crime. And at the same time, she's accused of a murder that happens the very same night. So that's the, that's the start of the novel. You will, yeah. Cause we can't give up, give away everything, but really it definitely makes you picture Alaska, right? The stories you're telling oh. make you really understand what Alaska is like. This is, this is totally a book about Alaska. It couldn't happen anywhere else. And not just because of the setting, but also the issues involved, because the issues are uniquely Alaskan. Like one of the key issues of the book is a promise that was made to the Alaskan natives back when their land claims were settled back in 1971. The Alaskan natives were promised what we call a subsistence preference. That is that they had first access to all subsistence foods, moose, caribou, rabbits, blueberries, salmonberries. They had first access or they were first in line to get those resources if those resources were limited. That was a promise that was made to them, and it's never, never been fulfilled. So even a half a century later, they're still waiting for that promise. See, so again, yeah. that's uniquely Alaskan there. Definitely. And do you see that as, you know, potentially when you write that it could be made into something, especially with people that would love to see the the uh, background of Alaska with that kind of uh, criminal slash drama? 
I, I missed that question. Again. No, like like made made, in, made into a movie or TV show, your book. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It does because yeah. people want those backgrounds. They want places beautiful like Alaska and Hawaii for a show, no doubt, because they like the. Um, it's just different. It's not the normal, average, everyday thing. You and you learn so much about Alaska through this book, in a way, just based on making it really exciting. But yet, really, Alaska, really, you understand what Alaska's like. Yeah, and, and in a couple of ways. So, so one, of course, is the landscape, because truly, Alaska is is just breathtaking. Right. It's just so spectacular. But in another way, too, and, and this is what I try to do in, in both my books about Alaska, is Alaska's, like you say, it's not a normal place. You can't be, it's hard to have a normal life there. I mean, when, the, when you get 45 minutes of sunshine and it's 40 below out in the middle of the winter, it's a different kind of place. And that extreme environment, coupled with the beauty coupled with the fact that it's mostly empty, only three quarters of a million people there, that is, and particularly in my first book, I had each of the main characters in the first book, which is named Broken Angels, changed in a different way, and it was in the different ways that they were changed by the, the landscape, changed by Alaska, that caused the main conflict in the story. Yeah. In Rin, in Rin's Crossing, it's a little bit... It is so intensely powerful. The people become so intensely... You're native or not, but especially if you're native, and it's critical to you how Alaska's treated, how, you know, what your vision for Alaska is. And because those visions often conflict... The, the fights, particularly in the state legislature, can be very, very bloody. Yeah, I'm sure. And there's a lot of money involved in this, too, right? Alaska has a lot of natural resources that makes it a very valuable state, right, for resources. <laughs> Absolutely, totally. I mean, of course, of course, there's the oil, which you're talking billions and billions, oh, yeah. billions of dollars. You don't ever think about right. that at some points. And I guess under the Trump administration, yeah. that's been opened up more, hasn't it? A little bit, but it, 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 we'll, we'll see what happens. But the 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 um, but you're right about the the resources. So Alaska is a resource extraction state, unlike many of the other states in the in the country, which are more information based or, or service based. Alaska is resource extraction. So many people's jobs are dependent on mining or, or timber cutting or fishing or pumping oil, and so they're. You know, they've got a dog in the fight. It's important to them that they still have access. Celebrity slots. Free spin. Free to play mobile social slot games in the likeness of your favorite celebrities. Making money. Spin to win celebrity experiences through sweepstakes. Free to download. Free to play. Yeah, baby! What are you waiting for? Win meet and greets, celebrity merchandise, gift cards, and more! 
Download Celebrity Slots today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and Freedom from Addiction here on Lipson and other podcasting networks, plus on the, my nationally syndicated show, 150 plus stations all over the world. And uh, we have another great segment that wins bringing us Freedom from Addiction, Truth Just Below the Surface. And we're getting very close to the election. Uh, everyone's getting anxious and as I was talking off air with our guest, I am very excited about this guest. So when introduce him. Uh, thanks, Neil. Uh, Dr. Caxton O'Pair is a board certified internist with over 30 years of clinical experience in hospital medicine, emergency medicine, and critical care medicine. He is on the front lines as a COVID-19 expert treating critically ill COVID-19 patients in COVID units, emergency rooms, and hospitals, and helping find solutions to the current pandemic in the United States. Dr. Pierre has been on this program probably three times previously, and you can scroll down and see some of his earlier shows. What we're going to do today is uh, talk about his new book. It's called The HCQ Debate. And the subtitle is, What Did Researchers Hide About the Hydroxychloroquine COVID-19 Clinical Trials? And were lethal HCQ doses given to COVID patients? Dr. O'Pierre, it's nice to have you back on yes. the show again. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Wayne. So right. the uh, HCQ debate, uh, answers some very tough clinical, ethical, research and scientific questions using the information already published in reputable world-class medical journals. This is the book every attorney, primary care doctor, healthcare professional, seasoned, honest journalists, the general public, victims of COVID-19 and their families have been waiting for. Jackson, it's nice to have you on the program. Thank uh, you. We're going to um, start with a question about um, the $4.5 trillion profit scenario. We always follow the money to find out what's happening with these tough questions and tell us uh, what's just below the surface here with the money. Yes. Um, when you, I looked over the beginning of the COVID up till this point, when I published this third book, what was driving me to write the book was why isn't there any information from the CDC and NIH on what doctors should can do in the past, even when there's an epidemic or pandemic or just a rapid spread of an illness, we always got information real quickly from the CDC saying, Hey guys, we don't have a cure. We don't have a treatment, but you guys can do the following for seven to nine good months, there was absolutely nothing on the CDC website except don't, don't, don't. And that's what drove me to write the first book, the second one, and this one. And as I was writing this one, it became clear that there's some information that's been withheld from the public. And that the question is, if people are dying, why will that information be withheld? Turns out 
when you put all the pieces together, and it's not any hard science to figure out. The politicians, the policymaker, healthcare policymakers in government and all these other institutions, and even researchers, they are all in the pockets of big pharma. Then the article came out in uh, JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, in March, March 3, actually, to be precise, of the American Medical Association, saying that it, for the last 20 years, between 1999 and 2018, Big Pharma has given $233 million a year to presidential candidates, senatorial elections, and stuff. And you know, the only person that I see that cannot get that kind of money is Donald Trump. So when you look at it, this is the only man that really has money that doesn't need anybody else's money. But the key thing here was how much money are these people planning or hoping to make that will make them want to kill as many people and not care about who they kill? It's a lot of money. And my, this is just calculations, very, very minimally calculated that, for example, at 1100, remdesivir was brought on the, the market at 1100 a piece. And if you give a, a $1,100, uh, 100 million people, that's $110 billion. And then we looked at drug prophylaxis. If they come up with a drug pro that can be used for prophylaxis or early treatment by big pharma, and if you say it's $1,100 per person and you want to treat a billion people at least, that's another $1.1 trillion. So the amount of money, when you look at vaccines, some of these vaccines are not only dangerous when you look at the process for making actual vaccines themselves, but if you look at how many people they will want to vaccinate, even at $1,100 again, I'm just using that number 1100 because um, Gilead came up with 1100 when they first introduced remdesivir. So I put a standard there. Say three people, uh, one person is getting three vaccines because they'll tell you, oh, the first one didn't work, you need a booster dose. So if you... Uh, give 3 billion people uh, 1,100 vaccines each time, you come up to about 3.3 times 3, $9.9 trillion. And everything points towards money. Nothing here because every research that I've looked at over the decades that I've been a physician, most of the time, the advantages of a drug are explained to people and they hide the side effects. But with hydroxychloroquine, it's the opposite. And ethically and intellectually, even the best critical mindset people don't understand this inverse relationship. You know, when the FDA looks at your clinical trials, they usually force you to produce the negative results and say, you need to show us these things. And, uh, but with hydroxychloroquine, every good thing about hydroxychloroquine is being hidden because it's a cheap drug. It will cost you about $6 or less to get treated and the treatment for COVID should be done at the earliest possible stages because we, we have the science, I mean, exact, precise scientific principles and actual treatments that show not only that hydroxychloroquine works, it's the only one of few things that actually work and should be given early, but it's extremely cheap. And by using it, it doesn't require a lot of other things. You don't have to be in the hospital. It's a pill. You don't have to get any shots. If you're exposed today and you're scared, you don't have to be scared. You just start taking the hydroxychloroquine. And what they're supposed to do is to do clinical trials to show who is hydroxychloroquine going to work for? Who is it not going to work for? 
I don't see any of those kinds of things. Instead, they do all this shoddy research uh, studies that don't even have the right types of conclusions. And then at the end of those papers, you, if you read the actual research document, it will say, we're not sure whether hydroxychloroquine will or will not work, but our study, which was done shoddily or reported shoddily, shows that hydroxychloroquine is ineffective in the early phase, et cetera, et cetera. And it makes absolutely no sense from a clinician's perspective, from someone who loves to read and research and find solutions to problems in science, in medicine, this is one of the greatest frauds of the 21st century. And I think somebody ought to be held responsible for it. Okay, so you follow the money, it comes back to Big Pharma. Yes. Now we, we have been um, listening to Dr. Farsi talk for months now, and he says something that he didn't say before. He contradicts himself. He changes his position and everything. And you have a chapter on Dr. Fossey. It was chapter three. Can you go over some of the high points? <laughs> All right. So uh, enter Dr. Fauci. On, this is the trigger for me writing this book. I know I've always you know, known Dr. Fauci as far back as when AIDS was first uh, you know, introduced as an illness with the defining uh, criteria in 1983. But following him over the years and observing, one of the things that struck me was, if I know what Dr. Fauci knows, America will not be having this number of deaths. But let's go a little further. The NIH and Big Pharma are the two donors, major donors to research in the US. And as we know, uh, NIH even did some work with China on COVID as far back as 2017. Um, but on July 29, it was actually a replay on July 31st that I heard. I've been following the guy, you know, and then I said, this doesn't make any sense. You know, we're looking at all these papers and Dr. Fauci will come on TV or on air and he will say, oh, the science and the data, the science and the data. And I said, what does he mean by science and data? All these papers that we're looking at show that if you analyze hydroxychloroquine, it actually is not only effective, it's very effective. They're using the wrong statistical operations. He should know that more than anybody else. So I looked at, on that day, it was June, July 31st, it was a Friday. And I heard him say, hydroxychloroquine is ineffective. Oh, that got me so mad. And that's what drove me to write this book. Jackson, I, I want to get on to uh, one more point before we uh, quit today. But I want to tell our listeners that we've been doing some shows with uh, Mark Hayden, medical doctor, Alabama, who has done inoculation as a potential way of taking care of the problem instead of vaccination. Okay. And you can go to my show and I'm listen sorry. to his programs. But the last question that I want to ask you today, and we can come back and have you on next week, uh, is are and can reputable medical journals mislead doctors? Absolutely. Um, there's several journals. The New England Journal has several controversial pieces that they published this year. One of them was the Dr. Mara study that was withdrawn. 
It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was basically a sham. The Lancet also published this sham study. And I think if you look carefully, when as an editor of a reputable journal, when scientists send you their papers and you read the entire article and the article says, we're not sure if what we're saying is correct, that instantly drops that article should. But if with respect to hydroxychloroquine, what they've done is, well, we're not sure whether hydroxychloroquine is effective or ineffective because of the way we did our study. So it becomes their study, which means it's not generalizable. But then they will, in the abstract section, say, ladies and gentlemen, hydroxychloroquine is ineffective and make a bold statement that it's ineffective. But when you now read the paper and you're familiar with statistical analysis, you'll say, well, but hydroxychloroquine is effective. So why are they saying it's not? And that's not just the issue. They can say whatever they want, but a reputable editor of a journal like the New England Journal should not accept those kinds of journals. But when you think carefully, who sponsors those uh, publications? The Big Farmer, as well as the NIH. So yes, they can mislead and they've misled a lot of people this year. I can tell you that. Uh, Caxton, um, so... Would you be able to come back next week and go on uh, with some more of uh, this highly um, um, profitable uh, stuff that you've written in your new book, um, which is uh, the HCQ debate uh, and talk to our people again? Sure. What time are we looking at? Well, we'll probably do Wednesday or Friday, but okay. uh, but. Um, We'll we'll continue continue with the program. It's it's been a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you. You've given us a lot of great information, and you've got a lot more information in your in your book. And uh, so I, I want to bring you back, and uh, we will um, be talking next week. Start Thank off you. with um, uh, the seventeen point smear campaign. <laughs> Hydro, uh, hydroxychloroquine sure and people can get the book on amazon.com you know it's on it's already on amazon okay yeah. and uh do you want to to give them your website or or any other contact information sure uh it's drcaxton.com d-o-c-t-o-r-c-a-x-t-o-n.com um i don't do much on the internet except you know provide information so um if you check Amazon, you get more from Amazon about me than my own actual website. So uh, I recommend that they get the book, though. Everyone needs this book, and they need to be able to talk to their senators. And if their senators are influential, they'll be able to do something about this. We need to be free. America is known for freedom, and they're taking away that freedom, even with this COVID. And it's methodical, and I think there is a reason behind it. I don't know what the reason is. I can't speculate. But I know with the science that we have and the information in the published journals that we have, America has been lied to. A lot of people are dying and more are still dying today. It's not supposed to be this way. Third world countries that don't have all the resources that we have, they figured a way to handle COVID and cut down the infection and death rates. What's stopping us? 
Well, some third world com uh, countries can go into a drugstore and get hydroxychloroquine Absolutely. without a prescription. Absolutely, without a prescription. We okay. grew up that way. Yes. But we can't do that here. No, no, no. It's, it's a re there's a good reason for it. But when the regulatory bodies begin to make laws and you know recommendations that distort reality and force doctors into a corner, you know, contrary to what should be based on science and medicine, that's poor, that's bad. And I think ev eventually, I hope someone will pick up a cue from all this and thoroughly investigate it if it can be done. Well, thanks again for being on the program today. Thank you. Uh, Dr. O'Pair. Thank you. That's all, Neil. All right. All right. That again was the uh, Neil Haley show simulcasted with Freedom from Addiction, Truth, Justice, Police Service. See you guys next time.